What would you say are the five most important characteristics of the Christian? I imagine if I were to ask a community of believing Christians in the United States, you would get answers, uh, I would hear answers like, well, he believes in Jesus as a savior. Uh, Christian is somebody, you know, the important characteristic, they read their Bible, they have a, a vital prayer life, uh, they keep sex to within a marriage between a husband and a wife, they go to church, um, you know, and, and these are all very important, valid things, uh, very important to actually learning to walk with Christ. But but most of these answers are primarily issues of private belief and conviction. Um, and God has some additional priorities when he talks about the kind of religion that he likes to see. And so we're going to look at James, the very end of chapter 1, going into to the first part of chapter 2, uh, to see what kind of characteristic God our Father wants to develop in us as his followers, as the family of God. This is James, beginning in chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What do we see here? As that main evidence that true religion is in your heart, the real evidence that the gospel has captured your heart, the real evidence of the true religion that God really wants. What we see here is a call to scandalous mercy. James zeroes in on how we treat the marginalized among us. It's the main evidence of true religion. Verse 27 of chapter 1, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, 
to believe in Jesus, to be, have an act of faith, to have a quiet time. No, it, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. In verse 3, he talks about a poor man and a rich man entering the church and, 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 and the impulse is to really take care of the person with significant financial means because we're talking about paying salaries, the ability to support missionaries, the ability to take care of the poor among us. Somebody comes in that has a lot of loot and they're just loaded. That's a lot of resources that could be put to the benefit of the kingdom. And so the temptation is going to be to treat them differently than the poor person. And yet that is exactly a denial of the gospel according to James. We have moral obligations to the poor. You say, Greg, I never entered into an obligation to the poor. Well, of course not. You don't enter into it. You were born into an obligation to love those who are poor and needy. Uh, Genesis chapter 4, when Cain killed Abel, he asked, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is, yes, you are. You were born your brother's keeper because human beings made in the image of God have a God-like responsibility to love and respect the image of God in others. It's something we're born into. It's not, uh, thank you, it's not contractual. It's not a social compact in terms of kind of modern theories of moral obligation. It's something innate in the heart because it's a part of the fabric of creation because it is a creation made by God who made us in his image and according to his likeness. The poor person has dignity and honor and value because of the one whose image she bears. And according to Jesus, when you look at somebody who is impoverished, somebody who can't take care of themselves. Jesus says, you are looking at me, the face of Christ in the face of the poor. Uh, Whatever you did to the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Whatever you did not do for the least of these brothers, you did not do it for me because I was the one asking for the cup of water. I was the one in the face of the poor. This isn't romanticizing poverty. Poverty is painful. Poverty is humiliating. It's suffering. This doesn't meant to overlook the the reality that poor people can be just as manipulative and deceptive and deceitful as me or you or any of the rest of us. Uh, but but Jesus identifies with the poor, and uh, and and that means that we have a degree of solidarity with the marginalized. Um, uh, the, the biblical concept of solidarity, that we actually have mutual obligations as the human race to one another. Um, the way this is often argued against is, and I pull this out about once a year, the, the, the story of the famous violinist. If you can imagine a famous violinist uh, who uh, uh, has a rare medical condition that means that he is going to die within 10 seconds. And so he then somehow through a mystery of modern science plugs himself into you and he starts sucking all his nourishment off of you. And, and so long as he's plugged into you right there all the time, he's alive. The question is, do you have the moral freedom to unplug the famous violinist knowing that he will die? Well, you didn't choose to have him plug himself into you. Uh, and so the, the logical argument in our culture, because value systems are based on contracts or compacts and mutual agreements, is you never agree to take care of them, so of course you can unplug them, and it's sad and tragic that he's going to die, but that's not a monkey on your back. Um, the ethic of Jesus is you have to keep the violinist plugged in because you were born with a moral obligation to protect the life of the famous violinist. Uh, it's, it's a very different thing, whether you're talking about migrants, whether you're talking about uh, the poor, whether you're talking about people of different races or backgrounds or issues than you, doesn't really matter because biblically we are our brother's keeper. 
And so James is zeroing in on this as the main marker or evidence of what true religion is, is how you take care of certain people. He lists them. He lists widows, he lists orphans, and he lists the poor. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Maybe back from when we went through Deuteronomy. These are the, 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 the privileged people groups that the God of the Bible identifies with. They're the protected classes in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Deuteronomy 10, remember how God identifies with them. The Lord your God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the immigrant, giving him food and clothing. That's how God wants to be known as a God of mercy who identifies with the marginalized. Um, you know, it's fascinating how often in the Bible God identifies with this. You know, the, the passage we read earlier and then Psalm 68 that we had in our liturgy where God introduces himself as a God of the poor. Um, you know, when people ask me if I'm speaking and they ask, Greg, how do you want to be introduced? You know, there are a lot of things I could say, but the way I introduce, say is, introduce me is Greg Johnson, one of the pastors at Memorial Presbyterian Church in St. Louis. You know, there are other things I could say, introduce me as an Enneagram 3, introduce me as somebody who loves architecture and cats. But, but my main public ministry is as a pastor at Memorial Presbyterian Church in St. Louis. So, so that's how I identify. Now think of it then how God identifies. Tim Keller says this. He says, realize then how significant it is that the biblical writers introduce God as, quote, a father to the fatherless and defender of widows, Psalm 68. This is one of the main things God does in the world. He identifies with the powerless. He takes up their cause. He has the tenderest love and closest involvement with the socially weak. He identifies with them. The, to wrong the poor in the Bible is to wrong God himself. Psalm 109, for the Lord Yahweh stands at the right hand of the poor person to save him from those who would judge his soul. The Sri Lankan theologian Vinosh Ramachandra says it this way. He says, among Israel's neighbors, as indeed in the ancient cultures of the world, the power of the gods was channeled through the power of certain males, the priests, the kings, and the warriors who embodied divine power. Opposition to them was tantamount to rebellion against the gods. But here... In Israel's rival vision, it is the orphan, the widow, and the migrant with whom Yahweh takes his stand. His power is exercised in history for their empowerment. Keller says, from ancient times, the God of the Bible stood out from all the other gods of all the religions as a God, the only God who was on the side of the powerless and of justice for the poor. You say, Greg, I get it. I want to be generous with all the blessings God has given me. But uh, I want to give my money to the worthy poor. Think about that. Were you worthy when God blessed you with eternal life, O Christian? Does God only give to the worthy poor or does he not give generously to us who are absolutely unworthy poor. I know where I came from. I was not the worthy poor. I was the unworthy poor when God chose me and blessed me and poured his riches upon me. You say, Greg, I'm just concerned that they might not be grateful. <laughs> How often do I give thanks to God for the blessings he's given me? Once in a thousand times, I stop and say, thank you, my Savior, because I'm the ungrateful poor. You say, Greg, they might misuse my generosity. 
And yet, I misuse God's generosity every single day. That's why I keep confessing my sins, because I keep sinning. You know, C.S. Lewis was once walking across campus uh, with a friend of his when he was stopped by a beggar who asked him if he had any spare change. And, and Lewis got out his, his wallet or purse or whatever he had, opened it up, and handed the man all of his cash. And after the man had gone away quite happy, uh, his friend turned to Lewis and said, you realize he's probably going to spend all that money on beer. And C.S. Lewis responded, well, that's what I was going to spend it on. <laughs> um, think of how Jesus gave mercy to the marginalized, the unworthy, the undeserving. Uh, imagine the church then as the body of Jesus, the family of Jesus with a family resemblance that reflects that overflowing generosity and mercy towards the marginalized. You know, I see some of you already so, so living according to this. All of the meals you've cooked for, for women at the Grace and Peace Winter Shelter, the groceries you collect for the food pantry there, the hats and the scarves you provide, the Christmas presents you buy so that children in foster care can have a Christmas, the children you've adopted and brought into your own home and made the most privileged members of your family because you are living lives of self-sacrificial mercy. Uh, I, I long to see us as, as a church family that's always scanning the room, trying to look for who maybe doesn't look like themselves today, who maybe is here without their spouse strangely, who is here and, and they, they are going through a hard time, who is on the, the, the margins of the church that needs to be brought in so that they're at the center of the church. I long for a day when we as a body are two or three hundred people scanning the room to take care of one another, to love one another, to overflow in mercy, particularly toward those who are on the margins, taking care of the vulnerable among us. You say, Greg, you don't understand. I've got kids to take care of, and I need to focus on them. And you do, and you do. It's perhaps God's most significant calling to you for a certain period of life for a great many of us. And yet in your focus, think about what you're actually teaching your children. Uh, what are you making them disciples of? If you put all your focus on your kids and you treat them like they're the center of the universe, like they're more important than everyone else, then realize your kids are taking notes and they will learn that lesson and they will grow up into women and men who think they're the center of their universe because they were treated that way. Men and women who will be self-focused because you focused all your attention on them. But if instead... You say, I want my good intentions to be biblically informed. I want them to be Christ-centered and I want them to reflect true religion. And then you lead your children in taking care of the poor and you lead your children into welcoming in the marginalized and you lead and model for your children by having that extra seat at the table so the single person who's lonely isn't sitting there alone at home. You know, what does it look like when as a family you cross lines of, of race and socioeconomic division and classism? You know, what does it look like if you train and disciple your children in radical mercy, scandalous mercy? It's costly, but you will make them into people who reflect the heart of Jesus. Now, why is this so difficult? It's difficult for a number of reasons. Uh, one is simply our own concerns for self-advancement and self-protection. It's, it's what's going on with the rich man in verses two and three and the need to, to take care of ourselves so you get the, you know, cause the, the poor man, I mean, realize the poor man could be a liability. 
he may really wreak bad, and that may chase off the newcomers, you know. Um, and yet, this is what Jesus taught in Luke 14. He said this, the Lord Jesus said, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbors, because if you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, O Christian, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. You see, in the ancient world, there was a patronage network where, whereby you would scratch other people's backs and they would then mutually be obligated to scratch your back. And so instead of saying, I'm going to invite my rich neighbor who will then have to help me get a job two years from now, instead, he said, invite into your patronage network the poor, the marginalized, the migrant, the person who doesn't fit in. Um, He's not saying, I want you to give a handout. He's saying, I want you to give a hand up as a lifestyle. We can be blinded also by not only these concerns for self-advancement and self-protection, but other things as well. But it's a very real risk in taking care of others. I remember a young mom in the church uh, a number of years ago where she had a neighbor who also had a single mom who had a bunch of kids. And her neighbor, they had the stomach flu like you have never seen it before. Uh, the neighbor was sick. The kids were sick. The neighbor did not have the physical energy to get out of bed to take care of her own children who themselves were desperately sick. And so this friend of mine, member of this church, uh, really wrestled and prayed because she knew if she went over and took care of her neighbor and her neighbor's kids, then what would happen to her family? <laughs> the same thing. It's vector control one on 101. And yet she prayed about it and she went over and she took care of her neighbor. She fixed food for her neighbor. She fed the neighbor's kids. She got everybody in the bath, got everybody cleaned up, got everybody their meds, took care of everybody. And for about a day and a half or two days was full time taking care of somebody else and their family, knowing the risk that she would infect herself and her husband and her children. And yet she did it because she said that's what Jesus did for us. He came and took our disease upon himself and let it kill him so that we could be healed. We can be blinded to the merciful heart of God because we're concerned of the cost we may have to pay, our own self-advancement or our own self-protection. And yet there's another reason this is hard, and it's because we have a built-in spiritual need to judge other people. Uh, it is a part of our own religious self-justifying uh, 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 makeup. And, and, and James names it. He says in verse 4, this judgment, judging tendency that I have in my heart. He says, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become what? Judges with evil thoughts. Um, local mom a number of years ago sent her daughter, young daughter, to Schnucks to buy a jar of pickles with the last of the family's EBT card, that's, that's modern food stamps. And as the girl quietly stood in line at the, the checker stand, she couldn't help but overhear the person in line behind her barking out her disdain for the travesty she was witnessing. See, that's how it is with these people. They waste my tax money using food stamps to buy snack food. And it wasn't the first time the girl would feel the stain of her poverty a poverty that was none of her doing, yet a poverty that marked her as someone to be scorned, never trusted, and a drain on the system. 
She wanted to cry out in response to the indignant comments clearly expressed for everyone around to hear. She wanted to speak up and say, you don't understand. I am going home to a house with nothing but government-issued cheese and bread. I am using these pickles to make cheese and pickle sandwiches for my family because that's all we can afford to eat. And yet experience had already taught her that those people would never listen to, let alone understand a poor kid like her. Friends, when you begin scrutinizing the food choices of poor people, you are claiming the prerogative that God alone has as judge. And James says, you are becoming judges with impure hearts. When you say something with an earshot, you are also claiming the prerogative of Satan, the accuser who will only use those words to destroy a young girl's life like that. And James calls it out as a toxic condition of the heart. Have you not become judges with evil thoughts? Romans 14, Paul says, who am I to judge another man's servant? I'm like, well, you're an apostle. But he says, who am I to judge another man's servant. It is to his own master that he stands or falls, and he will stand because God is able to make him stand. Friends, our concern for self-advancement and this tendency we have in our own self-justifying system to find somebody to look down upon and to judge them, it's, it's toxic, and it prevents the merciful heart of God from overflowing in our hearts And it's all because we fail to factor this whole thing through the gospel. That's why James frames this whole discussion the way he does. When push comes to shove, what is this about for James? He says, verse 1, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus, don't show favoritism. Because for James, this is an issue of where you stand with Jesus And do you really believe in him as a glorious Lord Jesus Christ? See, if you get the gospel, if you get Jesus, it changes everything. But if we factor things through other grids instead of the gospel, we're going to miss the heart of God. And so it's a heavy message. So how is it possible? How is it possible to live a life of scandalous mercy? Well, James gives us the resources here, doesn't he? Look at verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? God has chosen the poor in the world's eyes. I mean, look at who Jesus chose for his immediate team. He chose Galilean fishermen. I mean, nothing good comes out of Galilee. These are marginalized people by nature. Even when he threw in a really rich dude like Matthew, what kind of rich dude did he do? Somebody who had worked himself up by his own bootstraps and successfully you know, created a CEO of this huge corporate empire? No, he got a tax collector. These were the organized criminals of the Roman world. These were crooks. These people had their hands in prostitution and gambling and all sorts of stuff. Today, we would call them mafia. They were notoriously corrupt. And Jesus chose the lowest of the low to be on his team. It's what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Some of you were, not many. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what? 
the foolish things of the world, to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before God. On the playground, picking out his kickball team, who does Jesus pick? The foolish, the weak, the lowly, and the despised. These are God's nobodies, friends, and that's us. That is me signing up foolish, weak, lowly, and despised because as Christians, our first membership vow is you have to promise. You can't break this vow without breaking your membership vow. You have to promise to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving His displeasure and without hope save in His sovereign mercy. We are the, we are sinners anonymous. Sign up. I am Greg Johnson and I am a sinner. I am spiritually bankrupt apart from Jesus. I am spiritually poor. Look at the language. James uses to describe the very strong word he uses here for the the poor man's filthy clothes. The poor man's filthy clothes, the, the King James translated it as vile raiment. I want you to go into your closet later today. Open it up. Maybe it's a walk-in. Maybe it's just a rod. You can no room, stuff everywhere. But I want you to pick out the vile raiment. Um, you know, this is a really strong word. It's the same word that, that, they, that John uses in Revelation to connote moral filth, baseness, being particularly sordid. If you picture a, a man coming into the church gathering and he reeks of urine and body odor and his clothes are stained with feces and you want to gag and pull back their fleas buzzing around. His hair is matted and filled with lice. Their ulcers festering all over his body, oozing onto his clothing. And that's us. Through the prophet Isaiah, God tells us that our righteous deeds are just that, filthy rags. Paul uses... Uh, 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 the, the term in Philippians uh, to describe his lifetime of rigorous religious performance as rubbish, as as dung. The man walking into this church, making everybody pass out in his wake. You can almost imagine the congregation parting like the Red Sea as this guy walks down the center aisle, reeking of urine and so much that's worse. And apart from Jesus, I am that man. You are that man. That is the man Jesus wants you to love because spiritually that is the man I am and you are and Jesus loves you and he loves me and he rescued us. He washed us and he clothed us with the raiment, not a vile raiment, but the raiment of a king. If you come to a place, friends, in your life where you are resting in the work of Jesus on your behalf, then you know a thing or two about being poor. You know a thing about not being able to pay off your debts to a holy God. And if you're here and you feel like a massive ball of sin and iniquity this morning, if you're wondering whether anything you've ever done has ever been with a pure and undivided heart of love toward God, if you know that you are way too concerned with what other people think of you and about your appearance, and you know that your anxieties are largely because you don't really trust that God loves you, not you, not in, not personally, and if you're feeling urges within you that are damaged and distorted and you horror at the thoughts that go through your mind and you feel like a big ball of shameful sin and iniquity and you're ashamed at all the anger and the porn and the lust and the money you've wasted and what a terrible parent you are and what a terrible spouse you are and how bitterness is there in your heart and you feel so awful about it and you have a sense that your life is spiritually bankrupt that I have good news for you. 
Jesus says you are blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who spiritually are poor, they know nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling. The soul that knows it is bankrupt, Jesus says you are blessed and true happiness will be upon you from God, your Father, who delights in the bruised and the broken and the bankrupt. It's the only class of people that he saves. And it's us. God favors the poor spiritually just as he favors them in other ways. She who knows her poverty has a friend in Jesus and a friend in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that does something. When that sinks in, friends, it does something in your heart that can best be described as aesthetic. Because when you see Jesus coming to you with that kind of favor, with all of your bankruptcy, and you see him lifting all that weight off of your shoulders and carrying it to the cross for you, when it sinks in that your father delights in you, he's not an angry ogre, he's not shaking his stick, he's your dad and he delights in you and he sings over you in song because he is the God of the poor, he is the God of the weak, he is a God who saves sinners. When that sinks into your heart, friends, it changes you. Something aesthetic begins begins to shift. Look at the language with which James describes Jesus. Jesus' older brother, that guy who was always around the house growing up. James himself had not been a believer when he was young. He had rejected Jesus as the Messiah and only came to faith later on. And yet look at how he describes Jesus now. He says he is the glorious Lord Jesus. There's something that's shifted in his heart from unbelief to seeing the beauty, the desirability of Jesus. Something aesthetic has happened, something dealing with his sense of beauty. Jesus stopped being his older brother and instead became something tremendously beautiful and desirable, something he had to have that he couldn't live without because of its striking beauty. He says this Jesus is glorious and when the gospel sinks in, it does something inside of you. Jesus becomes so worthy, worthy of any sacrifice, no matter how painful, worthy of, of, of any risk, no matter how big. Jesus is beautiful enough to get the stomach flu in order to help your neighbor in the name of Jesus. When the gospel does that, it changes how we view the poor and the weak and the marginalized and the widow and the orphan and the migrant because we know what it's like to be there. That's where we were when Jesus came and rescued us. You know what it's like, friends. I mean, some of you are married. Admit it. You still know what it's like when somebody really beautiful finds you really beautiful. You know the feeling, the chill down the spine, the butterflies in the stomach, the feeling of floating on air, the trying to manage what on earth am I going to do with this now? And, and that's Jesus who is really beautiful, who finds you in Christ really, really, really beautiful. So beautiful that he would lay down his life in order to gain you. So beautiful that he would give you his promise in order to keep you. So beautiful he finds you that he will go to no end to keep you and to bring you to glory. It's counterintuitive, but that's what makes mercy so beautiful to us because we receive it and that makes us the family of mercy. Verse 27, God is what? God is our Father. Verse 1, who are we addressed as? My brothers. 
That means when you come to Jesus, you get a new family, friends, with God as your father, God as your dad, Jesus himself as our brother. Not ashamed in Hebrews 2 to call us that. In the ancient world, when a man adopted an adult into his household, it was usually a patrician with great wealth and landed estates, and he had no heir, and so he would then take an adult usually one of his slaves that he'll manumit or or, or free, and give his name to that slave. And that slave would then no longer be a slave, but would become a son and an heir and have all the the privilege of the firstborn. And, And all of the man's estates would be his, the wealth, the privilege, the property, the name, the title, all passes to the son. And to the father passes all of the son's liabilities and debts. And when God the Father claimed you as his own and brought you into his family as a son, as an heir, as a firstborn, he took all of your debts and all of your liabilities and he took them to the cross and he paid them in full so that you bear them no more. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And he's now given you every spiritual blessing. We have a picture. Can we have that picture? There's something about mercy that is a family resemblance uh, whereby we begin to look like our father in his mercy. This is my great uncle Earl. Little bit of a resemblance. Uh, he died around 1962 of cirrhosis of the liver. He was an alcoholic, but he was the only nice member of that family, actually, from, from all the cousins. Uh, but you can almost see a little resemblance. That's Martin L. Johnson, Martin Luther Johnson's general store. Don't think that he was a Christian. Uh, Martin L. was a scoundrel. Um, I don't know about Earl. He may have been. Um, But, uh, you know, there's something like when you see somebody, when you see the red-headed kid with the freckles and you know that he belongs to the red-headed guy with the freckles, uh, there's a family resemblance. That's enough on on Uncle Earl. Um, He had great shoes. Uh, But uh, (laughs) it's a family resemblance, folks. And when you begin to look, when God begins to work his gospel deep in your heart, you're going to begin to start looking like the mercy and love of your heavenly Father, and it's going to get deep inside of you, friends, because mercy, he says, triumphs over judgment. Shared a number of years ago about an ancient disaster, the plague of Cyprian. Christianity at the time was still very much a minority religion. It was still illegal. It was still persecuted. And Cyprian describes the plague that went throughout the Roman world, killing millions He says, the intestines are shaken with continual vomiting. The eyes are on fire with the infected blood that in some cases the feet or some parts of the limbs are taken off by the contagion of disease putrefaction. This is a bad disease. Cyprian went on to say, many went blind or deaf, many died. At the height of the epidemic, it's estimated that 5,000 people a day were dying in the city of Rome alone, including two Roman emperors, Hostilian and Claudius II Gothicus. The effects were just as extreme elsewhere in the empire as much as two-thirds of the population of Alexandria, Egypt, died. Dionysius of Alexandria described how the pagans responded. The pagans, he wrote, at the first onset of the disease, pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. 
Centuries earlier, Thucydides had described plagues in the city of, of Athens about how people would, would be buried in, in temples. They would go and cling to the altars of temples, hoping thereby to save their lives. And yet, whether they prayed or not, whether they believed or not, death would surely come and places of worship were piled, you know, a hundred feet high with the dead. Rodney Stark comments that uh, that those with means would flee the city. Uh, when the Antonine Plague hit Rome, uh, the classical physician Galen uh, got out of Rome quickly, retiring to his country estate to save his life. And yet, one group of people stayed in the city to take care of those who were dying. It was the Christians who stayed in the city as a family of mercy. And at the height of the second great epidemic, around the year 260, Dionysius wrote a lengthy tribute to the heroic efforts of the Christians, many of whom lost their lives while caring for others. He wrote this. He said, The Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of others. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their place. The best lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters, deacons, and laymen winning high commendations so that death in this form with the result of great piety and strong faith seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. Observers noted the heavy mortality of the epidemic. Quote, there is not a house in which there is not one dead. How I wish it had been only one. And yet, while the epidemic had not passed over the Christians, he suggests that the pagans fared much worse. worse. He says its full impact fell on the pagans because the Christian community functioned as mercy's family. While the pagans took anyone diseased and shoved him out into the streets so that they would not get sick themselves, the Christians pulled in not only their own sick, but the sick of the pagans, nursing them back to to life. Even just minimal amounts of care given to somebody who cannot care for themselves can mean the difference of life and death. When somebody is not able to drink fluids because they can't get up to get water and you put them out in the street, they will die of thirst before the disease can kill them. But if you give them basic palliative care and nourishment and clean them and wash them and give them food and drink, it's it's radical change in mortality rate. And the Christians willingly expose themselves to the virus. They risk their lives to nurse the pagans as well as their own. And the pagans never forgot who it was who had loved them. By the year 300, a tenth of the Roman Empire believed in Jesus And that was concentrated in cities, some of which had become heavily Christian, a few even majority Christian. And by the middle of the 300s, after Christianity was legalized, but not yet the state religion, it's estimated that half of the Roman world had come to faith in Jesus because the gospel, the love of the Christians, the mercy of mercy's family had captured the hearts of the empire. Jesus had captured the hearts of the Christians. The Christians were willing to die for their pagan neighbors. And they learned that from Jesus who did that for us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for numbering me among the family of mercy.
for having mercy upon me when I was a sinner, when I was not interested, when I was your enemy, you, Lord, came and you washed me and you brought me into your family and you claimed me as your own and you've given me sisters and brothers to be the chosen family that I would not otherwise have. And I thank you, Lord, for the family of mercy. Father, we consecrate to you the elements on this table, this cup, and this bread, that you would have mercy to us, that we might have mercy to one another and mercy to this great city. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.